The cultural acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle has radically changed these past 25 years, especially through our media. On February 7th of 1991, the first kiss between a homosexual male couple airs on American Network TV. It airs during an episode of L.A. Law. Advertisers threatened to pull their ads over the scene. Two years later, on April 29, in the show Picket Fences, two teenage girls kiss, and the CBS network demands that the scene be reshot in the dark. The culture was not yet ready. On March the 1st of 1994, on the sitcom Roseanne, Marielle Hemingway kisses Roseanne Barr, and ABC threatens not to air the episode, but does and it's one of the highest-rated episodes with more than 30 million people watching. Two years later, in January 18 of 1996, in one of the most popular TV sitcoms of all times, Friends, which I know many of you have watched, it features a lesbian wedding of two supporting minor characters, Carol and Susan. There is very few whimperings from the advertisers about this. In February of 1997, Ellen DeGeneres appears on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and she comes out as a lesbian. She is applauded as one who is brave, a hero. The next year, in September of 1998, NBC premieres the sitcom Will and Grace. It revolves around the story of four main characters, of which two are gay men, and it wins numerous awards. You can see how the culture is beginning to accept the homosexual lifestyle. Targeted towards our teens in May of 2001, the popular TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer first shows, is the first show to develop a lesbian relationship between two of the major characters. More than television and movies, in February of 2003, The Rawhide Kid, a Marvel Universe comic character since the 1950s, comes out in the comics as being gay. In the following 10 years since that time, until now, many actors and personalities and sports stars have come out and expressed their homosexual lifestyle. It is an expression of pride, of bravery, and the world applauds them as such. And so today, shows like Glee and Modern Family have prominent gay characters and couples, and we don't bat an eye. The homosexual lifestyle is now in our mainstream media, which has worked its way into our culture, even our conservative Filipino culture, where homosexual behavior is normal, and our media depicts it as acceptable lifestyle. We are now asked to accept homosexuality, and the homosexual lifestyle as normal. If we do not accept it as normal, then we are branded as bigots. We are branded narrow-minded, unloving, we're now even being pushed to allow same-sex marriages. And if we don't fight for their rights, and we are infringing upon the rights of these individuals who the culture say deserve happiness. You see, there are two lies and myths that our contemporary culture has embraced, and it foundations why we think this way. The first lie is that if you disagree with the way someone lives, then you must be a hater, a hate mongerer, a bigot. The mere differences of opinion as part of our postmodern culture means that you are a hater. We can no longer have differences of opinion, especially when it comes to the homosexual agenda. The second lie is the notion that if you love someone, you will accept them. You will agree to whatever they believe in doing because you love them. That is the very essence of love, accepting them for who they are. But truth be told, you can love someone and disagree with the way that they live. You love your children very much. And yet, when they do something that is not appropriate, you can discipline them, reprimand them. But you still love them very much. Both of these lies, of course, are not true. And yet, they permeate our 21st century culture. And no wonder very few of us are willing to speak up for what is right according to what the Bible says, lest we are branded as those who are narrow-minded and hateful, or we may risk losing friends. How are followers of Jesus Christ, who believe in the Word of God as the authority 
for faith and life to respond to the prevalence of the homosexual culture. You may say that this issue is not relevant in my spectrum. I don't know any homosexuals, and I tend to live in my own cave. But you never know when this will intersect your life. One day you may have a child or a grandchild, a a close friend or relative come to you and tell you that they are struggling with same-sex attraction. Or they come to you and they believe that they are gay, lesbian. How will you respond? This is not a topic that you and I can avoid. Something that is quite serious. And so we continue our series entitled Culture Wars as we tackle the homosexual culture. We've been looking at cultural practices and beliefs that are part of our environment that we need to filter through a biblical grid to see if it is something that we accept or transform. As we've noted, culture is the way of thinking, living, and behaving that defines a group of people. And because we don't actively think about our culture, we allow the environment to define our set of beliefs or what we would call our worldview. Only when we are introduced, exposed to an opposing cultural practice or way of believing that we are, again, made aware of the culture of which we are part. And it is our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to engage to transform the culture for Him. How do we engage a culture that considers homosexuality normal, acceptable, even progressive, Let's take a look at what the Bible says, because it is not my opinion that matters on this subject. It is what God says matters. Before we look at some scriptures, number one, if you're taking notes, I want to define some terms. It's important that we define terms, number one, because there's a lot of terms thrown out there. Being gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And I want to define, really, there's only two terms homosexuality and heterosexuality. When I talk about homosexuality, the simple definition is being sexually attracted to someone of the same gender. Being sexually attracted to someone of the same gender. Likewise, heterosexuality is being attracted sexually to someone of the opposite gender. Since the normal orientation is being attracted to someone of the opposite gender, what causes the orientation of homosexuality, the attraction to someone of the same gender? This is something we'll talk about a bit later, but it is an important matter because it is a matter of vigorous debate. Some say it is a genetic predisposition. Others say it is due to one's environment, such as family conditioning. Others say it comes out of a traumatic experience like abuse. For now, as we define the terms, we identify that there are two differing orientations. Now, number two, it is important to distinguish between homosexuality, the orientation, and homosexual behavior, the action. We must distinguish between the orientation, that that the struggle with the attraction of a same gender sexually, and the behavior, the living out of that lifestyle, the action. Being homosexual is a state. It is an orientation. Someone can have a homosexual orientation, but never express that attraction in action. They struggle with same-sex attraction, but they do not practice it. They do not live it out openly. Likewise, someone can have a heterosexual orientation, but then they want to experiment by engaging in homosexual acts. What the Bible forbids and condemns is homosexual behavior. The acting out of that same-sex attraction. Living it out as a lifestyle. Note carefully that the Bible, contextually, in the verses we're going to take a look at, do not explicitly condemn the homosexual orientation, the state of being attracted to someone of the same gender, but it does explicitly condemn the behavior, the acting out of it, However, that being said, is it okay to have these attractions? This is not an easy question to answer. 
The simple answer is that homosexuality, the attraction to the same gender, is a product of our sinful fallen world. We are all sinners, and we have a propensity and predisposition to sin. And that predisposition to sin encompasses desires that are not part of God's divine plan and purpose. That would include our desire to lust, our desire to cheat, to covet, to have pride, to hate, anger. As new creations in Jesus Christ, we are to live a spirit-filled life, controlling our thoughts and our actions according to the Word of God. So also with these desires that are not part of God's plan, so also with same-sex attraction. So it's not okay to have same-sex attraction since they are not part of God's divine plan. But since we live in a sinful world, it is something that we do struggle with as part of our sinful self. And I believe in the grace of God, He understands our struggles. And so He condemns us on the basis of are acting out on these emotions, not if we have them or not. It's the same thing with anger. We can be angry. Anger is not necessarily a condemnable sin. And yet if we act out in anger, in ways that are inappropriate, then it is sin. So number three, thirdly, we must examine how orientation is acquired. To the question of orientation... Is it genetically acquired or is it environmentally conditioned? Essentially, the question is, is homosexuality learned or is it acquired? As part of the gay agenda, they want us to believe that there is something called a gay gene. They are pushing for the fact that homosexuality is genetically acquired. And this idea was first popularized when a prestigious research journal published in July of 1993, a study by Dr. Dean Hammer, which claims that there might be a gene for homosexuality. This would be a breakthrough. Because if someone is born gay, then they cannot change who they are. And that absolves us, absolves them, who have this orientation, to act out on it because this is who they are. For the past 20 years, they've been trying to prove that there is a gay gene. But if you read the scientific journals, they have yet to come to a conclusively proven fact after 20 years of research that there is a gay gene. I invite you to even read some peer-reviewed articles for how non-Christian scientists even would say that the research of Dr. Hammer is flawed. But you can imagine the media firestorm to embrace this idea when it was first published. It was published in the front page newspapers and magazines. Because now there is hope that there is a gay gene to address this issue. I will leave the analysis, the detailed analysis of Dr. Hammer's research to people who are much smarter than me. But one of the main flaws, as one scientist notes and writes, is that genetic research can only focus on traits that are directly inherited, not heritable. Inherited things are things like height, eye color. These are things that you cannot change because of the environment in which you grow up. But heritable traits change due to the environment. Heritable traits are not inherited traits. Almost every human characteristic is heritable. And because Dr. Hammer's research focused on the possible heritable predisposition to homosexuality, which is not inherited, then it is a flawed presupposition to his research. If you're confused by all that language I just used, for example, it's like doing a research to see if there's a gene that makes someone love basketball. Would you spend 30 years of your life searching for a gene, if you're a scientist, to see if one is predisposed to loving basketball more than another sport? It makes no sense. Your love for sports is something that is conditioned upon your environment. But hypothetically, let's say that there is a genetic predisposition to something it still doesn't mean you have the moral right to act it out. 
As theologian William Lane Craig mentioned, some researchers suspect that there may be a gene which predisposes some people to alcoholism. Does that mean it's all right for someone with such a predisposition to go ahead and drink to their heart's content and become an alcoholic? Of course not. Just because you are predisposed to something doesn't mean you have the right to become a drunk. So if it's not genetically acquired, then it must be environmentally conditioned. And personally, from what I've read and researched, I do not believe there is such thing as a gay gene. But when it comes to environmental conditions, the factors are so many that we can't cover it all this morning. But the basics would include family dynamics. Research has shown that homosexual orientation can come from cases of physical or mental or emotional abuse. Sometimes it comes from a lack of engaged father figure. Sometimes for a young boy... That orientation, that attraction comes because they have been under the repression of a very dominant mother figure. Other environmental issues would be cultural stereotypes, such as what men in our culture and what women in our culture are supposed to like and are supposed to do. For example, men in our culture are supposed to like sports. Women are not to like sports very much. And so if you have a young man who doesn't like sports very much, we may begin to think, oh, that, that young man is very effeminate. That young man must be gay. Or we see a young woman who excels at sports and loves sports. And we would sometimes label that young woman as perhaps being a tomboy, be, 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 perhaps becoming lesbian. In our culture, generally, we think that it is the role of the women to cook. And so there's a young man predisposed or, or, or finds as his hobby, not sports, but cooking. Our minds begin to wonder, maybe this young man is gay or he, he likes music more than he likes sports. And yet, when we look at some of the best cooks around the world, they are heterosexual men. It is in our culture that we say that women like fashion. And yet there are some heterosexual men who, who love nice clothes just as much as women. And we can't seem to call them heterosexual men who like fashion. And so we think of a term and we call them metrosexual. And you see how those cultural stereotypes working into the environment begins to label and to place people which they may simply not be but begin to wonder if they are. Labeling is also a condition sometimes resulting in a homosexual orientation. I often get upset when at school I hear teens referring to other teens derogatorily. He's a gay. She's lesbian. Because labels tend to stick. And often, when that young man grows up, and perhaps in the first three or four tries, he tries to engage a young woman in a relationship and there's a failed attempt. He begins to look at himself and say, well, you know what? Maybe this is just not meant for me. And he remembers how he was labeled when he was young. He says, well, you know, maybe I am gay. Maybe I am homosexual. Or perhaps there's a young man or young woman who is in an emotionally unhealthy relationship and they are not happy in that relationship. And so they begin to wonder if I'm not happy in my relationship. Maybe this is not for me. And they remember the labels that they were thrown at when they were young. And they wonder, well, maybe I am homosexual. And yet you can ask any married couple here this morning if they're always happy in their relationship. And I think very few men or women would wonder, well, I guess I'm not happy. That makes me attracted to the other gender. Labeling often may lead one to be more homosexually inclined. But the honest truth for Christians and non-Christians alike is that we don't fully understand the roles that genetics and environment plays in producing the homosexual orientation in a person. But the important thing is not necessarily how you got your orientation. The important thing is what you do with it. And so we need to see how God views homosexuality and its behavior. 
to see how we can live out our lives if we know someone with this orientation or we ourselves struggle with it. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22. Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22, it is the third book in your Bibles. Look what it says in Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Pretty straightforward there. Jump two chapters over to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with the male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. God's view on the homosexual behavior is very clear in these Old Testament verses. God abhors it. He calls it a sin. He calls it an aberration. It is an abomination. Very strong words to give us a very clear view of how God views the homosexual behavior. Now, some skeptics would say, well, that's in the Old Testament. God was setting some ground rules to a group of people who had not been in a relationship with God for 400 years after the exile in captivity. So he made the rules a bit tougher. Or that was only culturally specific to that dispensation of law. What about this age of grace that we live in? Well, let's like take a look at some New Testament passages. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Look what the Bible says, verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. The Bible is very clear. The homosexual behavior is not natural. It is not normal. It will never be normal in the eyes of God. Jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Look what the Bible says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. A litany of of sins that they pick one who does not know Christ. Finally, the last passage to look at in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Look what the Bible says. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of father and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Why did I just go through a catalog of verses in the New Testament? Because there are some people who believe that there's only one verse that talks about this. But what I want you to see that is made adamantly clear in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that number four, God's view of the homosexual behavior is that he calls it a sin. It is an aberration. It is an abomination to him. But I also want you to see from these New Testament verses that sometimes we have a tendency to pick out the homosexual behavior from these verses and we treat it as if it is the worst of the sins. Wow! Can you believe the homosexuals? That's the worst of sins. But I read the list And along the list, we are referenced to fornicators, adulterers, liars, people who covet, those who steal, those who get drunk. You see, my friends, God sees all of these behaviors as sin on the same level as the homosexual behavior. And it should be stopped. 
if you are practicing it. Romans 6.23 reminds us that all sin leads to death. So the practice of homosexuality is not the worst sin a person can commit, as all sins are equally sin in God's eyes. But God does view this behavior as sin, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It is not only for that culture, it is for our times today. Our God does not change. And so how he views homosexual behavior back then is how he views it today. The current culture would say that since heterosexuals are allowed to be in marriage, then homosexuals should be married as well. If sex is intended in the bounds of marriage, then let a homosexual marry so they won't be committing adultery. That is how convoluted the logic of our culture has come to today. God's design for the institution of marriage is to be between one man and one woman. As far back as Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when marriage is ordained by God, it is ordained, the very institution of marriage, between one man and one woman. And so the beauty of sex, as we talked about last week, is only to be expressed in the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Therefore, anything apart from God's divine setup is not fit for marriage. Marriage is not for two men. Marriage is not for two women. Marriage is not for one man and one woman who is a prostitute. The institution of sacred marriage is between one man and one woman in a faithful relationship. But then the argument says, well, that puts homosexuals in a disadvantage. They have a right to be happy. If heterosexuals can be happy, then homosexuals have the right to be happy. As we touched on last week, happiness is not a right. Happiness and true joy is living out what God has ordained for your life, but it is not a right. My friends, you do not have a right to be happy. You have a right to be holy. Let me repeat that. You do not have a right to be happy. You have a right to be holy. Because you know what? If happiness is a right, I want to be happy. I don't want to be a pastor. All the stresses and the problems that come with it, I don't want to work. So I want to be happy, and I have a right to be happy. And I didn't grow up with much, so you know what? I'm going to take some of your money, steal some of it. I like women. I'm heterosexual. So I think I'll have three or four mistresses. And I'm going to live on the beach because I like the beach somewhere. Because I have a right to be happy. And you know what? I came from a poor upbringing. So you know what? I'm going to cheat and lie my way through life because I deserve to be happy. You know, doing drugs makes me happy and getting drunk makes me happy. So you know what? I think I'll be happy. That's ridiculous. The argument doesn't make sense. Happiness is not a right. If it were the case, then everyone would do anything that they wanted. And yet, even our community has set rules, moral rules, that we are bound by for our benefit, as God has set rules that He bounds us to for our benefit because He loves us. I hope you understand that. Happiness is not a right. You do have a right to be holy. So if God views homosexual behavior so strongly as is portrayed in the scriptures as an abomination to him, and he is detested by it, then, my friends, how do you respond when you see homosexual behavior? Do you turn off the television when you see a show that is depicting the homosexual lifestyle happily? and normative do you walk out of a movie do you no longer laugh at a joke when some gay man laughs about his lifestyle you see a few weeks ago i talked about and asked you to write three words belief values actions because your beliefs drive your values your values drive your actions and what you do in life shows me what you really believe. 
And if you really believe the Bible and you desire the very same heart as the heart of God, then you will see that the homosexual behavior is a sin and it is not something that you would hold to a high esteem. You would not value it. And because you do not value it, you will have nothing to do with it. You will not watch shows that condone it. You will not laugh and be entertained by people who express this lifestyle. Just like you are not to watch shows that take adultery lightly. Or watching sitcoms where sleeping around is the norm. And the men, like in How I Met Your Mother, speaks about the conquest every evening. Or you would not watch shows where mistresses and philandering men are held to a high esteem. And yet in the culture of our church, we see this. Or a few months ago, maybe a year ago, there was a show that came out, a Filipino movie that was entitled The Mistress. And I know many watched it because I heard the conversations around the church. And yet if we believe what the Bible says about sexual sins, the title itself should cause in our hearts to shy away from it and not even entertain it. And yet, the reality is we've been so desensitized by our culture, it is such a part of our environment that we walk into it and simply say, well, it does happen, doesn't it? How sad that the culture has so affected us that we can no longer be shining lights in this world because we accept everything that the world accepts. Yet the Bible tells us, I abhor sexual sins. It is an abomination in my eyes. And if I were to walk closely with God, then my heart would beat as his heart does. And so it would come out very clearly in my actions. Our fifth area of talk, the response of those living out a homosexual behavior. I know that there are some in our church who struggle with this. There are some in this church who we welcome here who are living this lifestyle. What is the response of those living out a homosexual behavior? The response, fifthly, is repentance towards holiness. Since God reveals in the Bible that homosexual behavior is a sin, like any other sin, it must be repented of. And you must ask God for help through the power of the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Jesus Christ to help you in the struggle of same-sex attraction. If you are a practicing homosexual, you need to acknowledge your sin, first of all. Because unless you acknowledge that it is a sin, then you will never correct your ways. Second, you need to ask God for forgiveness. The wonderful, merciful grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that with His shed blood, we can be forgiven. We can stand before the very throne room of God and come boldly. That's what the Bible says. Because we have been made as white as snow. The third thing we are to do is we are to believe that God has indeed forgiven us and, and quit feeling so guilty and, and putting us in that box. We are not identified by our sin. We have a new identity in Christ. We are Christians, followers of Christ. And then what? How then do I live the rest of my life if I struggle with this attraction, this same-sex attraction? Well, the Bible says you are to live in holiness, to fulfill God's plan for your life, which is holiness. You see, listen carefully. The solution to homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The solution to homosexuality is not heterosexuality. Your job is not to cure the homosexual and pray that somehow they will no longer be attracted to the same sex and that they will be attracted to a woman if they're a male and then get married and have children and live happily ever after and never ever struggle with this attraction again. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that both for a homosexual and a heterosexual, the end goal is to be transformed to live a life of holiness. That's what we talked about last week. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 
verse 3 and verse 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 7. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your holiness, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that applies both to the heterosexual and that applies both to the homosexual. It is the will of God, your holiness. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. If you are struggling in this area, ask for God's help. As you are filled by the Spirit, you begin to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, one of which includes self-control. Just like a heterosexual young man or young woman, before he is married, is to remain pure, is to remain celibate, so also the young man or young woman who struggles in same-sex attraction, they are to remain pure and holy with the help of God. You see, what God is asking the one who struggles with homosexuality is the same thing he asks for one who is single, to keep pure, both in the body and in the mind. If you struggle in this area, you are to remain celibate in holiness. Will the attractions continue to come? Yes. But God can give you the grace to not act out on it. Is it hard? Absolutely. If anyone struggles with sexual sins, he will understand the struggle, the temptation. Even for heterosexual men and women who struggle in pornography, who struggle in adultery, who struggle with lust. So too the homosexual man or woman. But we have the power of the one who overcame death to help us through these struggles and to live in the power of the Spirit in holiness. For some, it is something they need to go seek professional Christian counseling because of past hurts that have inclined them to this orientation. But the response of those living out of homosexual behavior is to repent towards holiness, as is the response of those living a heterosexual life but in sin. They are to repent towards holiness. It is the same. You know, I often get asked the questions, will homosexuals go to heaven? It's quite a common question. But I want to rephrase that question because that's not asked correctly. The question should be asked, are there Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction and will they go to heaven? For those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the Bible says very clearly they will go to heaven. They are called Christians. There are no such things as unforgivable sins. If there were, then it calls into question the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ to save. But is it possible then for a Christian to struggle with homosexual orientation and temptations? Absolutely. Just like there are Christians who struggle with sexual temptation of the heterosexual type or struggling with coveting or struggling with stealing and lying. No Christian is without sin. We are all sinners. And yet, are we allowed to continue in this lifestyle that God says is an abomination? And the answer, of course, is no. Because as Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21 tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 10 tells us that if a person continues to sin and never repent, there's a big possibility that that person was never saved in the first place. If they continue to sin unrepentant, then it shows forth their unregenerate state. There is no such thing as a gay Christian because if one is a Christian, they desire to follow God's will. They struggle against temptation. They are trying to live a life holy and pleasing before the Lord. They are a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. But if you define gay Christian as one, yeah, who believes in Jesus, but actively lives out the gay or lesbian lifestyle. They are unrepentant. They see nothing wrong with what God sees as an abomination. Then that person is probably not a Christian in the first place. 
But Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, I believe, I know, do go to heaven because of the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace. Our sixth section. What is the response of Christians who encounter homosexuals and those practicing the homosexual behavior? How are we to engage them? Are we to ostracize them? Are we to push them away? Are we to to welcome them into our church family? Just like any other sinful people, we engage them because we want to win them to Jesus Christ as well. We love them as God loves them. If there is one whom you know that genuinely struggles with same-sex attraction, pray for them. Come alongside with them as you would one who struggles with opposite-sex attraction apart from marriage. As you would help one who struggles with maintaining purity in singleness, you are to come alongside those who struggle also with same-sex attraction so that they can keep holy as well. Show them grace. Show them mercy. Most homosexuals do not choose to want this orientation. They would like to change if they could. And like all who struggle with sin, we are to provide accountability. We are to come alongside them in support. We are to give them boundaries so that they can live a holy life. We interact with them like any other sinner because we too are sinners. But when we interact with them, we ask that they do not live out their behavior when they are with us, which is unacceptable to God. In your desire to reach out to the lost, make sure you do not sin or tolerate sin in the process. If they carry on in their lifestyle, then you are not to be a part of it. For example, I know many homosexuals. I would call them my friend. I've known them for many years. They know where I stand on this issue. They know that if they are around me, they are not to express their lifestyle. When they are with me, they do not kiss. They do not bring their boyfriend or their girlfriend with them as I do not approve of the lifestyle. And yet, I want to minister to them. Just like I'm friends with an adulterous man, I'm walking with him in the journey of faith, and yet I have told him, you do not bring your mistress with you in these meetings. I do not accept her. She is not to be around when we hang out. Because in that person, you have sinned in your behavior. Does that make sense? You see, I'm not a big fan of the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin. I understand the force of that statement. I know what it's trying to convey. Love the sinner, hate the sin. But sometimes that statement is a bit too pithy. It's too short. It it gives an opening to continue to love people and also to tolerate their sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin, but... It's okay, don't do anything about it, right? That's kind of the idea. There's not a challenge towards transformation. You can love someone, but you do not have to tolerate their sinful behavior. That's what we go back to that, those cultural lies we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. If you love someone, it doesn't mean you have to accept everything that they do. We can interact with them and yet not accept the behavior that is unacceptable to God. How do we engage those living openly this practice? Jesus provides a great example as he is noted as one who is a friend of sinners. Turn with me to this last passage of John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 7 to 12. John chapter 8, verse 7 to 12. You know this story well. The Pharisees bring an adulterous woman to Jesus and they ask Jesus, what do we do with this woman? In the law of Moses, we are to stone her to death. 
Love what Jesus does. Look at verse 7 to 9. So when they continued asking him, Jesus raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. They had their stone in their hand ready. The Bible doesn't reveal to us what Jesus wrote on the ground in verse 8. But can I venture to guess that perhaps he wrote the names of the Pharisees. And he wrote down next to their names hidden sins that they thought no one would ever find out about. Sins of the minds, of the heart. The Bible says the older one, the smarter ones left before they were convicted. So only Jesus and the woman stood there, verse 10 to 12. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Did Jesus let this woman off the hook? No. Jesus knew that this woman was an adulterer. And yet, look how he refers to her. He does not define her by her sin. Understand? He does not call her the adulterer. He calls her the woman. Just like we are not to define a homosexual by his sin. You are a homosexual. No. You are a person who struggles in this area. But you are a person whom God loves. And and look how he replies to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. Kind of a paradox there. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. A warning not to return to a sinful lifestyle. But in this one phrase, you have both great grace and mercy, and then you have a demand of holiness. It is the balance we are to employ when we respond to those with same-sex attraction. We are to come to them with great grace and mercy, and yet also demand from them holiness. Jesus does not condone her actions, but with grace and mercy and with, with, with all the tenderness that only our Savior could express, he said, go and sin no more. I believe I'll meet this woman in heaven. And I believe we were to ask about her life and about that moment when Jesus met her. I believe she did not sin anymore. Because when one has been extended grace and mercy, it strikes the heart much deeper than it does in anger and in condemnation. And my friends, that balance between grace and mercy and the man for holiness is something that is very difficult to do. But something that our church needs to balance out in all areas of sin as we invite those sinners into our midst because we too have been saved by grace and yet called to live a holy life. The Bible says in verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, note that, they are to follow Jesus, shall no longer walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. They will begin to experience the enjoyment of life in holiness, not only for those who deal with same-sex attraction issues, but those who suffer from sexual sin issues and sins of all type. If we come to Jesus in holiness, that we will begin to live life anew. That is our response. To show them how wonderful it is to live in holiness.
And until we Christians can show the world and show the homosexual community that there is joy in living in holiness, that it will be very difficult to attract them to Christ. I know that this is a subject matter that many of us simply turn a blind eye to. We don't want to deal with it because it is messy. But yet I also know many families in our church who deal with this. You have children, you have relatives who struggle in this area. And yet you want to be the good guy and you don't want to, to, to not be a friend and be one who is open-minded, you think, and progressive. But my friends, we are bound by the Word of God. And if we believe about what the Word of God says about this lifestyle, then we also must believe it as well. But praise the Lord for His wondrous work on the cross, which forgives all sins and all sinners, the greatest of which is me. If God can extend to you grace and mercy... He can extend grace and mercy to the homosexuals and the heterosexuals living in sin. May God give each one of us wisdom. May God give our church wisdom how to extend grace and mercy in the demands of holiness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in humility and asking for your forgiveness because we have accepted into our minds, into our culture, that which you find as an abomination. Forgive us if we watch shows and movies and laugh at comedians and entertainers who are not only practicing this lifestyle, who portray this lifestyle as being okay because then our heart does not beat as the heart of our Lord. Help us to be wise. Help us to clean up our minds. Help us to live in holiness. For those in our church and in our midst this morning who struggle in this area, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them in their repentant hearts, would begin to do a mighty and good work so that they would understand and remember that they are being called to holiness. Help us not to be influenced by what the culture says we are to believe. Help us to stand firm in conviction for what the scriptures tell us we are to believe. It's not easy, Lord. Help us to be a church that extends grace and mercy in the demands of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.